Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Oh, I see a wave in the front. Good job, Timson. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting that we, we, um, we, this has been an unusual, unusual year in America. And it, frankly, I think it shows how good we actually have it. Uh, that, that we've had ordinarily a lot of stability and a lot of community, everybody getting along. This year, everybody's fighting with each other. And, you know, we're all wearing these weird masks. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12. And we are strangers on this earth. We may live through, and Christians, people that believe in God, have lived through hard times and, and elections and kingdoms rising and falling. And our hope is, is not in whoever wins elections. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And our home temporarily is the United States of America or Montana or wherever you might be if you're listening to this. That's our temporary home. Our permanent home is in heaven. And that, I think that that sense of we are strangers on this earth, I think, is something that as Christians we need to keep in mind when we're getting stressed out about the events of the day. And the other thing is, is we are in this series, this excellent series, uh, 40 Days in the Word, that we're, we're using based on uh, materials and a lot of the teachings from Rick Warren and Saddleback Church in, in uh, Southern California. We're doing both um, a series of sermons, like today, but we're also doing uh, small groups. And I know we have a variety of small groups. My wife, Julie, and I are hosting one that's actually a virtual small group. So we're meeting on Zoom, and we have people from a couple of snowbirds that are down in Arizona, a couple of folks that are across the state of Montana. And we've just loved and enjoyed the opportunity to get together with people and, and just focus on learning the Bible, studying the Bible. And uh, I thought, you know, JR last week and, and then Jeff two weeks ago, he did, did a teaching on how to study the Bible. I thought that was really good. I was supposed to teach a couple weeks ago. I got uh, exposed to someone that had coronavirus, so I had to go quarantine. I'm, I never got it, so I'm, I'm back in the saddle doing my thing. So this week's service, this teaching that I'm doing today, is a little bit out of order, but, but it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it all works. And today what I want to focus on is, is the issue of if we are focusing on studying the Bible, uh, as the, the Word of God and how to study the Bible and, and why it's important, there's kind of this underlying question that we may have or that, that's, that certainly many of us may have, and that is the question, can I trust the Bible? Can I believe the Bible? Is the Bible true? Is it reliable? And that's what I want to focus on today because this verse that we've has been kind of our theme verse, 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, all those things, right? But that, those first few words there, all scripture is breathed out by God, that's the foundation of our belief in the Bible. Not that God wrote every single word or dictated it, but the Holy Spirit communicated the message in God's will to the people who wrote it. And we're going to talk a bit more in a little bit about all the people that wrote it and how it came together over a period of time. But in doing so, in asking that question, can I trust the Bible, we've actually determined that, yes, the Bible is reliable. The Bible is trustworthy. And I'm going to give you seven reasons today, seven ways in which the Bible is reliable and accurate. It's historically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. A lot of people freak out when I say that, but we'll just hold your fire and wait till we get there. It's prophetically confirmed that it's reliable. It's a unified message 
consistent unified message of God's will and hope and promise for his people. The Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is confirmed by Jesus. Jesus relied upon it and believed in the Old Testament and that it was true. The Bible has withstood attacks ever since it was, ever since it was uh, uttered by God and ever since it was compiled. And finally, only the Bible, only the Word of God has transforming power for our lives. So that's another evidence of its truth, is how it impacts our individual lives. So first, let's talk about history. Let's talk about the Bible uh, historically. There are some people who have criticized the Bible and says, well, various things are wrong in the Bible or misplaced in the Bible. Or there's things in the Bible that actually aren't historically accurate. Well, let's begin, first of all, with that question of, does the Bible say that it's actually true? And it does. Here's a couple of verses. In Hebrews chapter 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie, and, and, he, and, the, and this is the word of God. And then Psalms 33, 4, the word of the Lord is right and true. So we begin with the belief that, yes, the Bible, the entire Bible is true. So let's look at some historical reasons why, if you just judge this, you got this book, right? And this book, some of the writings in this book are very, very ancient. So if you just compare this book to other historical documents, other historical records, and you evaluate it based on the standards of how you evaluate other historical records, you will find that the, the Bible is considered a historically reliable document. It is relying primarily upon eyewitness accounts. It is also uh, in the copying and preservation methods, particularly the Old Testament, the, the methods that the scribes used to copy scrolls and to preserve the integrity of the, the law and the prophets and the books of wisdom, uh, it was painstaking. It was exact. I'm not going to go into all the details. There's a lot of resources out there if you want to look at them on, on the methods of how the scribes, the, the Jewish scribes, maintain the accuracy of the Old Testament scrolls. But it was painstaking. And if there was even a minor error discovered in a scroll that was copied, that scroll was thrown away and they started over because it was so important to them to preserve the integrity and the sanctity of the Word of God. And then real places and real events. This picture up here, this little pyramid thing, this is called the Ziggurat of Ur. I was at a military base for in southern Iraq, about a mile from this location. A bunch of soldiers from our unit went and climbed those steps and went and went in it. And the, the guy, the local guy, was saying this was actually Abraham's house and was trying to, you know, sell trinkets. And uh, I think I don't think it was actually Abraham's house. There's no way of proving that. But the point is. Ur of the Chaldees is where Abraham first lived, and God called him out of that. That place is where I was in southern Iraq, and it, it, it's a great place to be called out of. <laughs> so here's a, here's a historical example, the case of the missing empire. Have anyone ever heard of the Hittites? Hittites are mentioned prominently in, in the Bible, particularly in the early Old Testament, and yet there was this, there was kind of an absence of historical record of the Hittites in non-biblical uh, sources. And so a lot of people were saying, well, this shows that the Bible is false. There's, there's no Hittite empire. So then in 1812, uh, an archaeologist discovered the city of Petra and discovered these particular, uh, like the, the one you see there is an actual photo of, of the, one of the tablets that he discovered with this unknown writing that they hadn't seen before. And then it, there was this seal that was found in, in a place nearby. It's kind of in northern Anatolia and other spots. This seal was donated to the British Museum in about 1835. 
the museum rejected it because it was an unknown writing and they believed it was fake. Okay? That, so this is actually the copy of the seal that was preserved uh, that later was deciphered. So there were a series of discoveries in, in, from 1812, 1830s, 1860s. And so by 1884, a, a scholar finally published a, a pamphlet saying, uh, yes, we are confirming the Hittite Empire did in fact exist based on all these tablets and seals and other things that we found. We haven't fully deciphered it, but we believe this is independent historical evidence that confirms what the Bible says that the Hittite Empire did exist. So it wasn't until the 20th century that the Hittite Empire was, fully, was, was understood in greater detail. There were a bunch of documents and um, bilingual tablets discovered in 1906, 1934, and 1947. So like 1934, they actually found like this underground, almost like a library with a thousand clay tablets. And they had writing on one side, that some of them were cuneiform, and the other side was this Hittite language. It's kind of like the Rosetta Stone. And they used these, these writings to decipher the Hittite language and then to learn all this stuff from the records that had been found. Well, guess what? Up until this point in the 20th century, there were a lot of people that were saying the Bible's false. Here's a glaring lie. There's no Hittite empire. And now they're saying, guess what? The historical record confirms what the Bible tells us. So those examples go on and on and on. If you want to go look at the book of Acts, look at every city, every island, every location in the book of Acts, every single one of them existed uh, and, and can be confirmed. If you go to a lot of those, those archaeological sites, go to Jerusalem and look at all the historical sites going all the way back into the days of David, and you can find the actual location that exists on planet Earth. And there's a lot of other uh, religious uh, texts from other religions where you can't say that. That's actually not true. So now let's talk about it scientifically. That's the big one, right? Everyone's going to go, oh, science and the Bible cannot exist together. Well, the first thing you have to do is say, let's focus on what the Bible says rather than what we have taken one little verse and interpreted it into this great big dogma that's not actually supported by Scripture. Because when Christians do that, or when believers do that, then they set themselves up to where they're, they're basically doing another human extrapolated version of reality that may not be what the Bible says. I'll give you maybe one of the most prominent examples in history, and that's Galileo versus the Catholic Church. So Galileo was a, f a famous scientist, and he, had, he took a lot of the uh, early discoveries from Copernicus and kind of built on them and, and took them a little bit farther. He came up with a theory that the Earth was round and that the Earth actually rotated around the sun. It was called the heliocentric uh, uh, theory of the solar system. This was contrary to the dogma of the Catholic Church. The, con the Catholic Church said that the Earth was the center of God's creation and the solar system and the universe. Well, guess what? That's not from the Bible. That is a made-up additional doctrine of the Catholic Church, which ultimately science disproved. But they, they didn't get that from the Bible. They got that from their own way of imposing their will and their order upon society of that day. So now, let's go to science of that day. Well, up until... Galileo, Copernicus, and Christopher Columbus, the earth was flat, according to science of that day. Well, way back in Isaiah, God said that the earth is round. Isaiah 40, 22, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth, thousands of years ahead of science. According to science, until about, about 1492, God was wrong. 
who holds up the world? Atlas, uh, there's these pillars, the Hindus have this animal thing that holds up the earth. Who holds up the earth? Well, according to Job, Job, by the way, the oldest book in the Bible, the first written book of the Bible, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, intact uh, piece of literature written by human beings. In Job 26.7, he said, God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. That's actually a pretty darn good description of, of our reality, isn't it? The science of the day said that was wrong. But guess what? Science is constantly changing as it discovers new information and new facts. The Word of God is not changing. So, sickness. <clears throat> Up until, um, even through the Middle Ages, even into um, the, the 18th century, sickness, they believed, was caused by too much blood or a, an imbalance of the humors. According to uh, Greek medicine, there, they, there were these four different elements of earth and four different humors, and if you were imbalanced, that's why you were sick. So this, the prescription for a lot of illnesses was to cut someone open and bleed them, which we know is the worst thing you can do. Now, George Washington died of being overly bled. Uh, if you've re ever read the original Robin Hood story, that's how he died. He actually died uh, from, he was injured and sick or whatever, and then he died from the physician bleeding him. So just threw that in because I remembered it. Uh, anyway... That's not what God said. Way back in Leviticus chapter 17, he said the life of every creature, creature is in its blood. God made us. He understands that life, though the blood is, is our life, uh, and he didn't say go bleed them. There's no instructions anywhere. There's a lot of medical instruction, uh, which we're going to get to in a minute, in Leviticus. There's no instruction from God anywhere in the Bible to bleed a sick person, and yet that was the prevailing science all the way up until into the 18th century. So, how about this one? Diseases are spread through contagious transmission of, of germs or viruses. This really wasn't discovered until, until the, well, you can see here, 1546 was a major breakthrough by an Italian scientist who had been studying the bubonic plague. And then in 1722, a, a British scientist, a doctor, uh, published a transcript based again on studying the plague. And they, up until then, there were all these theories of seeds or evil spirits or whatever. But really, at that point, in the 1540s up to 1720s, about maybe 17, uh, I think there were some, there are some circles of, of med medicine that it, wasn't, it was early 1800s before they finally started believing in this contagion theory. They, they were doing smallpox vaccinations at the time of the Revolutionary War in the United States. A guy named Dr. Benjamin Rush was a pioneer in this, in this subject. And they did vaccinations uh, and basically to, to inoculate, but they didn't even understand why. Okay, so we're in 1800s before germ theory is really widely spread. Well, guess what? God knew it way back in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, he gives specific instructions about if you have an infected person, he was talking about leprosy at this time, that you quarantine them outside of the, the camp for seven days, and then you check on them, and then you quarantine them for seven days more. And, uh, you know, I think we're doing a 14-day quarantine now. I mean, it's God, God you're, you're messing up our whole freedom here. But God understood quarantine, and infectious diseases thousands and thousands of years before the science of the day. Up until 1800, science said God was wrong. Turns out he was right. So here's the big one. It's a big elephant in the room. Evolution versus creationism. 
Today's science says Darwin cannot be correct. Darwin cannot be correct. Take a look at this book. Darwin's Doubt, written by Stephen Meyer. This is one of the leading Christian science, and I don't mean he's a Christian scientist. He's a scientist who's a Christian. Uh, he's, a, he's a leader in apologetics, and, and he's written this book called Darwin's Doubts. And if you go to his website, you can see a very robust debate. Oh, there's a whole page of reviews from scientists who are arguing and criticizing, whatever. Check it out. Here's what it comes down to. Modern molecular biology, as we understand it today, DNA, as we understand it, proves that Darwin's theory of evolution, that we all, or that all species originated from some simple life form that was formed in the ocean and crawled out onto land, cannot be true. It simply cannot be true. The, 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 the way that proteins are formed in the construction of cells as we are, as we are born and as we're, or as we're conceived and, and uh, growing in a womb is so incredibly complex. You cannot extrapolate this. And I'm talking atheists. Atheist scientists are saying Darwin's theory is, cannot be true. Not is not true, probably is not true. Cannot be true. It's impossible. There's another half of Darwin's theory that is, is different. So the, the one half of his theory says that all these species come from a common ancestor or whatever process, okay? The Bible says when God created all these animals, they, he, he caused them to produce after their own kind, okay? So that contradicts, and, and, he, and he created them. They didn't form out of the mud of, of some spontaneous thing without a creator. So that, the Bible contradicts that part of Darwin's theory. There's another part of Darwin's theory that says that within a species, there are changes in evolutions that may happen. That, the Bible doesn't say that that's wrong. We have this little dog, a uh, little yippy dog like this, and I'm always teasing the kids, and I'm saying, well, Stella has to, you know, get tough because she's going to have to go off and join the wolf pack. And, uh, but the reality is that Stella and the timber wolves that are roaming Montana all originally had some canine ancestor that God created, and we now have all these breeds of dog and foxes and coyotes and wolves and all that stuff. What we don't have is we don't have a common ancestor that produced a wolf and produced an alligator, okay? We don't have one that produced a cat and a bald eagle because that's not what God said and that it, be, it defies science as we know it today. Here's another example. So this Dr. Meyer has this institute called Discovery Institute up here. Check it out. He's written a book about, or no, he, he's advertising a book called The Miracle of the Cell by Michael Denton. So if you, the more we understand about science, the more we understand how complex life is, the more we understand it required an intelligent being to create us. Not an intelligent being, the most supreme intelligent being, God. So, science is changing, the word of God does not change. So let's talk about another way in which we can rely upon the Bible, and that is that it's prophetically accurate. And so the word prophecy, there's a lot of different contexts for prophecy. Prophecy could be a word of encouragement that goes directly to a person from God in which maybe they're talking about some circumstance of their life. I'm using it in the context of a prediction or a promise of the future that then later we can judge based on looking back in time, seeing whether or not it came true. And the Bible is full of these prophecies, many of which have come true, and some which have not yet come true. Here's one of the most prominent ones in the Bible. 
in Daniel chapter 2. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, Israel has been exiled into Babylon. The Babylonian king is named Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream that troubles him. Daniel interprets a dream. He tells him, I'm not doing it. God's speaking through me. Daniel not only tells him what the dream is, but then interprets it for him. And here's what the dream was. He envisioned this statue of a man with a head of gold, and that is the Babylonian empire that he had at that time. Then uh, chests and arms of silver that are slightly different sizes, and that's the Medes and the, em- and the Persians, the Achaemenid Empire that came later. And the Persians were, were larger than the Medes, and so they're slightly different sizes. Then it came, after that was a bronze uh, torso and hips and, that, and, and upper uh, thighs, and that reflected the Greek and the Macedonian Empire because Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great, they came out of Macedonia, then they conquered Greeks, and then Greece conquered uh, most of the known world. And, and it overthrew, so, so Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, and then the Medes and the Persians were overthrown by uh, Alexander and the Greeks. Then legs, uh, knees and lower legs of iron, and that's the Roman Empire, okay? So all of these things were prophesied during the time of this first one, Babylon. All those next events came to pass. And we're now down here with feet of clay and, uh, and partially iron, and there's a whole bunch of theories on what that means, whether it's modern Europe, whether it's the United Nations, whether it's the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you know, th- there's all kinds of theories. But here's, here's what happens then. In chapter, in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 34, Daniel says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on, of it, on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Well, that's Jesus Christ, the stone that the builders rejected, created not from human hands, but from God. In other words, at the final uh, return of Christ, he will crush whatever human kingdoms remain, and he will deliver us all into his eternal kingdom. The point is, this elaborate prediction came about came hundreds of years before all these events came about. Daniel also predicted that Jeru- that Israel uh, would basically be carried away and scattered across the earth and then would be reestablished as a country and he actually predicted the time that it would happen and it happened. So let's talk about Jesus, the most uh, talked about person in human history, the most prophesied about person in human history. He fulfilled 300 over 300 prophecies in, from the Old Testament. And here's a few examples. A messenger would precede him in the spirit of Elijah. Well, that's John the Baptist. He would be born in Bethlehem, but he would be called a Nazarene because he was born in Bethlehem, and then he, his, he, his family moved to Nazareth, and he was called a Nazarene. He would go to Egypt and then return, which is what his family did when they fled from Herod. The, there would be innocents slaughtered in his, uh, in his area of the country, after he was born, and that's what happened. Herod went and killed all the babies trying to kill some king that would challenge him. He would be from the family of David. He would be from the tribe of Judah. All those things happened. His triumphal entry was was prophesied going into Jerusalem. He was betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Uh, he was silent before his accusers. He was tortured and beaten. He his, his The soldiers cast lots for his clothing to take them after when he was being killed. He was pierced, but he did, his leg, his bones were not broken. If you recall, when he was crucified, uh, ordinarily when they're getting, when they're like, okay, this thing's gone on long enough, let's kill this guy. They'll break their femurs and it'll uh, it'll kill him rapidly. 
And they went to do that. He was already dead. They had pierced his side with a spear, but they hadn't broken his bones. And then uh, he was hanged on a tree, being crucified on a cross. So all these things came about. Well, there's only one on here that Jesus would have had any control over, and that's this one silent before his accusers. All those other things were external things that happened to him. He couldn't pick where he was born. He was an infant when his, when, or a toddler when his parents fled to Egypt. Um, all these things that happened to him. So he, didn't con- he wasn't a clever uh, fraudster who went through and, and kind of had this list of prophecies he needed to fulfill and check them off, check them off. They were things that happened uh, from events around him that then did indeed, um, that did indeed show that he was the Messiah. He did willingly give up his life for us. He did willingly do that, if you recall. But if you want more resources on this, check out this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. He goes through in extraordinary detail uh, and much greater than than what I could cover today. And and that's an excellent resource for that. Here's another way in which the Bible is reliable and is trustworthy. And that is that it's thematically unified. Why is that a big deal? Because it was written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three different languages, and yet it's consistent from front to back. And it's consistent in this. It is God's story of redemption for a fallen humanity. We're going to watch a video here from an organization called The Bible Project. I would encourage you to look at this, uh, at this organization anytime you want. Excellent, excellent explanations of, of books of the Bible. You can go ahead and play it. This is an overview of the New Testament and explains how it fulfills a unified message from the Old Testament from beginning to end. The New Testament. If you open up a Bible to its table of contents, you'll see it's made up of two large collections, the Old and New Testaments. The word testament refers to a covenant partnership, which is what both of these collections are all about. They tell one epic and complicated story of God's covenant partnership with Israel and all humanity. The Old Testament is called Tanakh in Jewish tradition. It's a unified scroll collection of 39 Israelite texts that were over a thousand years in the making. In contrast, the 27 books of the New Testament all came into existence within 30 to 40 years of each other. They were all written by first-generation followers of Jesus. From an early period, Christian communities began collecting these texts and reading them alongside the Old Testament as one unified story that leads to Jesus. The New Testament begins with four narrative books that together are called the Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth's life, death, and resurrection as an announcement of good news. They're followed by a fifth narrative work called Acts of the Apostles. Here, the risen Jesus commissions the apostles, a word that means the sent ones. They're appointed as Jesus' representatives to spread the good news about him throughout the ancient world. After Acts comes a collection of letters from the apostles. These were written to provide teaching and guidance for local communities of Jesus' followers called churches. There are 13 letters connected to the Apostle Paul, and they're not arranged in the order of when they were written, but rather from the longest to the shortest. Then there's the letter to the Hebrews, written by a close but unnamed associate of the Apostles. After this are the letters of James, Jude, Peter, and John. Two were brothers of Jesus, and two were among his first followers. The last New Testament book is the Revelation, a letter to seven churches that reveals a prophetic word of challenge and comfort to all of Jesus' followers. So those are the books of the New Testament, but what are they about? And how do they connect with the Old Testament to make up one unified story? Think of it this way. 
The Bible is one long epic narrative with multiple movements or acts. The Old Testament recounts the first series of acts that give you everything you need to make sense of the story to follow. The core themes and the plot conflict are arranged in design patterns. And then in the New Testament, these are all picked up and carried forward to the story's culmination in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. The first act is about God and all humanity. God provides a sweet garden temple for humans who are made to be God's partners in ruling the world. But the humans are foolish and they give in to a dark temptation and rebel against God's wisdom. So they're exiled into a wilderness where they start killing each other. They build cities that spread their selfishness and oppression leading up to the big bad city of Babylon. But God loves the world and its foolish humans, so he sets in motion a rescue plan by promising the arrival of a new human who will destroy the evil that has lured us into self-destruction. The next act of the biblical story is about God and Israel, and it develops the themes and patterns of the first act. God calls a new humanity out of Babylon into a sweet garden land, Abraham, Sarah, and his descendants, the Israelites. God promises that through them, divine blessing will be restored to all of the nations. Surely these are the new humans that we're waiting for. But the Israelites repeat humanity's rebellion against God, building their own violent cities that lead to self-destruction and another exile in Babylon. But God sustains his promise that the new human will come from Abraham's lineage. It will be a priest king who will now have to rescue both Israel and humanity from Babylon to restore God's blessing to the world. Now, notice how these two acts are designed according to the same pattern. The second act is a longer and more violent version of the first, and together they explore the tragic human condition, but they also highlight God's promise, which is developed more in the next act, the Old Testament prophets and poets. The prophets accused Israel and all nations of their evil, and they announced that one day God himself would arrive to bring the day of the Lord and deliver his world from Babylon. He would do it through a promised royal priest, who's going to suffer like a slave and die for the sins of Israel and all humanity, but then he'll be exalted as king over the nations. He will call others to leave Babylon and join the new covenant people, who will partner with God to rule over a new Jerusalem, that is, over a new creation. And so the Old Testament concludes by anticipating a new act in the story. And when you turn to the New Testament, it's the same story, now being carried forward in Jesus. Let's see how. The four gospel accounts introduce Jesus of Nazareth, both as the promised son of Abraham who will restore God's blessing to the nations, and also as that new human who will defeat evil and restore humanity to partnership with God. So Jesus is portrayed as a human and more. He went about announcing the arrival of God's promised kingdom, and he spoke and acted as if he was Israel's divine king. But instead of calling himself king, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, that is, the human one who would act like a servant. The Gospels are making the claim that in Jesus, Israel's God has become the faithful Israelite and the true human that we are all made to be but have failed to be. Jesus' mission was to confront that dark evil that lurks underneath humanity's evil, luring us into selfishness, violence, and death. But how do you defeat that kind of evil? The surprising answer in the Gospels is that Jesus overcame our evil by allowing it to kill him on his paradoxical throne, the cross, where Jesus died for humanity's evil and sin. And it's where he lived out what he taught, that nonviolence, forgiveness, and self-giving love are the most powerful things in the universe. And because God's love for his world is stronger than evil or death, Jesus was raised to new life as the prototype of a new humanity. And this brings us to the story of Acts. Through the Spirit, 
God empowers Jesus' followers to spread the life and love of Jesus out into the world as they invite people to leave their old humanity and join Jesus' multi-ethnic family, the new humanity. This is where the letters from the apostles fit into the story. Here the apostles address early Christian communities and they show how the good news about the risen King Jesus changed history and should reshape every part of our lives. They also explained the good news by constantly appealing to stories from the Old Testament and the story of Jesus, showing us how to see our own life stories as part of the epic biblical story. So all humanity is trapped in a Babylonian exile, but Jesus came to create a new home. We're all living in different kinds of Egyptian slavery to selfishness and sin, but Jesus died as the Passover lamb to liberate us into the promised land. Our old humanity is bound for the dust of death, but Jesus' resurrection opened up a new future for a new humanity. We live here in the current evil age, but through Jesus and the Spirit, a new creation has burst open here and now. And this leads us to the book of Revelation, where the whole biblical story comes together in powerful symbolism and imagery. Jesus is portrayed as a slaughtered, bloody lamb who is exalted as the divine king of the world. He's leading his people out of slavery and exile in Babylon. And as they resist Babylon's influence, they may have to suffer alongside their slain leader. But when you follow the risen king, not even death can prevent the dawn of the new creation, which is here depicted as a new Jerusalem garden temple, the true home of humanity after its long exile. And so on the Bible's last page, heaven and earth are reunited and the new humans take up their appointed task from the Bible's first page to rule the world together in the love and power of God. The New Testament is a remarkable collection of documents. They represent the testimony of the apostles that points us to the risen Jesus himself. And through God's Spirit, these human words have been speaking a divine word of hope from the first century to the 21st. Each book shows how God, through Jesus and the Spirit, is leading our world to its ultimate goal in a renewed creation. And so the story's end is really the beginning of a new story that is yet to be told. And that's what the New Testament is all about. Isn't that exciting? <clears throat> it's amazing. <clears throat> but they do, that group does such a good job of explaining the Bible. It's called the Bible Project. Uh, tons of resources, uh, videos, uh, books. We have we bought a book, Caleb and I have, and we go through it. And um, I would encourage you to, and all these subjects that we're talking about, the science, the apologetics, uh, the, the prophecies, uh, things like this, there's a lot of homework you can do. And we're not saying that that's a substitute for reading the Bible, but certainly in terms of, of uh, I guess, confirming the Bible, we, I find it very, very helpful. And so that, what that does is that leads us to this next portion, right? It leads us to this portion that says, well, if I believe in Jesus, but I, but I don't believe in the rest of that stuff from the Old Testament, that doesn't, that's problematic because it's all a fulfillment of the same story. And in particular, Jesus continually referred to the Old Testament and referred to those scriptures, explained how he's a fulfillment of them, but also demonstrated that he believed in those scriptures. In Luke chapter 24, it says that Jesus, he was explaining this to his followers when he began with Moses and the prophets, and he explained how he, how they basically all pointed to himself as the Messiah. Then in John chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Because he understood, that same um, you know, cartoon that we just saw, he understood 
that he was the fulfillment of God's promises for his people, going all the way back to, G- to Genesis. And so he believed in the prophets. He believed in Jonah. He believed in Noah and the flood. Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, these, some of these very controversial parts of the Old Testament that some people don't want to accept. Jesus explains how he, you know, he followed the example of Jonah, three days in the fish, similar to him on the thir- three days in the, in the tomb. And by the way, uh, in, in the 1800s and in the 20th century, there are two different examples of, of human being that was actually went overboard, swallowed by a giant whale, and the, the person that was in the 1800s was in the Mediterranean, which is where Jonah would have been. And he was, uh, after 24 hours, they, they captured the whale and they cut him out. And he was still alive. He lived. Uh, he had like weird bleached white skin. The other guy uh, was in the Atlantic Ocean and he was in for approximately 36 hours. And he also lived. He recovered and then they, some museum in, in London paid uh, charged admission for people to come meet the Jonah of the 20th century but in the way that the way the Jews cal- calculated days Jonah could have been in the um in the whale for as little as 36 hours because it's on the third day rather than three full days and, and there's an example of a man in the 20th century that did that and lived uh anyway that's that's the issue here you you can't accept Jesus and reject other parts because they're uncomfortable or they challenge they challenge your intellect. It reminds me when I was uh, in junior high school my 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 sister had met some people that were friends and more like acquaintances in Bozeman and she was telling one of them that we were Christians and invited her to church and the lady says, "Oh, you read the Bible that's wonderful. Uh, what parts do you follow? what parts do you believe in and Kim was really witty she said. Uh, only the only the fun parts that are really easy to live by, and the lady just kind of looked at her and said, "Just kidding! No, we believe the whole Bible." But <laughs> you know, that's kind of a funny question. So, so then let's go to the this, the fifth reason we can rely upon the Bible, and that is that it withstands attacks, and it's been the most read, the most uh, published, the most you know highest selling, and also the most attacked book in human history. Voltaire was a French intellectual in 1764. He said, in a hundred years, no one will read the Bible. You will basically have to find it in a museum. I'm paraphrasing from the French. Well, uh, I read this yesterday, and we've got a few of them in the room here. We didn't have to go to the museum to get them. And this is what I read yesterday out of my Bible. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's from the book of Matthew. And then Friedrich Nietzsche was a famous uh, German intellectual philosopher. He said in 1882, God is dead. And then in 1900, God said, Friedrich Nietzsche is dead. (laughs) So why do humans reject the Bible? One of the reasons that humans reject the Bible is because it requires us to accept that Jesus Christ is uh, the Lord doesn't. It, that's why it's a. It's tough for us. It's that. It's that rock of offense. It's that stumbling block. It's. It's that question. That that requirement that says we have to believe that there's a life beyond this, and that and that our life, either eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, is based on our acceptance of Jesus Christ as the resurrected Son of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because it's not just about feeling good 
and having an intellectual exercise in this life. It's about surrendering our life to the Lord of all creation and asking, admitting we're sinners and asking for his redemption from our sins. And if we're wrong, then either there's some other answer out there that we, we've completely missed or there is no answer. We're all just some random chance. But all the things that we've talked about before convince us that that's not the case. We're not a random chance. There is a great intellect, a great power, an all-knowing, all-powerful power who created us, and that is uh, our path to Jesus Christ. And that's finally the final thing that you can know and you can rely upon the Bible, and that's because of the power of the Bible, the Word of God, to transform our lives, our individual lives. So at one point, Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he was telling them some difficult things they didn't want to hear. And some people said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And they left. And Jesus turned to his disciples, and he said, are you guys going to leave also? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus said, what are those words? He said, if you continue in my truth, you shall know, or you continue in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's not just some random truth. It's the truth that comes from the word of God. And so if there's anyone here today that is saying, I want that truth. I want to hear that redeeming, I want that redeeming uh, love. I want that, uh, that moment where I can accept that Jesus is Savior, and I want him to be my Savior. The hope is, it's very simple. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. It's faith. It's a one-on-one conversation that happens inside your spirit between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the Bible says that when that happens, that a whole new relationship comes out of that experience. That relationship is a covenant or a, a, uh, a, an agreement, a, a sealed commitment. And God says, it, will, it goes like this in Hebrews chapter 8. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Because guess what? We're all sinners. That story we saw with the cartoon and all the violence and the idolatry and the rejection of God, well, guess what? We can't be so smug as to think that if we were back there, we'd be different or we'd be better. We wouldn't. We'd be just as bad as they were back then. And we're, we've got plenty of our own sin and problems today. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. And the Bible, as the Word of God, as the, as the breath of life that he brings to us, when we accept that Savior, when we believe the Bible, that transformation of our life is another reason why we know that the Word of God is true. So these seven reasons that I've, that I've laid out today, that historically it's accurate, scientifically it's accurate, it's prophetically confirmed, it is unified and agreed as the story of God's love for you and how he wants to save you, redeem you from your own sin and your own fallen state. Jesus, our Savior, confirmed that the Old Testament not only was reliable, but that it pointed toward him as that new human being who who took our sins upon himself. He became the sacrifice. He died so that you need not die eternally in your spirit. The Bible withstands the attacks that have been levied against it ever since it was first put together. And finally, the transforming power of the Word of God in our life. The Bible says that we may be sanctified by the washing of the water of the Word. 
That's why we can believe in the Bible. That's why we can rely on it and trust it. So I'd encourage you as we go through the remainder of this series and as you as a Christian are, are walking the walk, it's a difficult walk, isn't it? But, but begin with that foundation of the word of God. You can rely upon it. It is a light, a lamp unto our feet, right? A light unto our path. The word of God is. And you can, you can allow it to guide your life. You can allow it to speak to you. You can trust God's word. And more importantly, you can then invite his spirit to use his word to transform your life. And then spread that message. That's the key. Spread that message of good news, the gospel, salvation, to those around us who are still seeking.